0: Good morning everyone, so good to see you. Some I haven't seen for a while and new additions to their families even as they come and visit with us. Uh, We'll be reading from uh, Matthew 23 uh, to prepare our hearts for the message. It's a good one today. Matthew 23. Follow me as I, I read Then Jesus said to the crowds and to his disciples, The scribes and the Pharisees sit on Moses' seat. So do and observe whatever they tell you, but not the works that they do. For they preach, But they do not practice. They tie up heavy burdens, hard to bear, and lay them on people's shoulders. But they themselves are not willing to move them with their finger. They do all their deeds to be seen by others. For they make their phylacteries broad, and their fringes long, and they love the place of honor at feasts, and the best seats in the synagogues, and greetings in the marketplaces, and being called rabbi by others. But you are not to be called rabbi, for you have one teacher, and you are all brothers. And call no man your father on earth, for you have one father who is in heaven. Neither be called instructors, for you have one instructor, the Christ. The greatest among you shall be your servant. Whoever exalts himself will be humbled. And whoever humbles himself will be exalted.
1: Will you pray with me this morning? Great Father, we come to you this morning with our hearts heavy as we seek to understand your word. We come hungry this morning, we come thirsty for your righteousness and for your truth this morning. All week we have enjoyed uh, wonderful fellowship and wonderful food um, in a very earthy way. Um, Lord, our hearts were filled with thanksgiving. We gave thanks to our our Christ and our Father um, because it is through Jesus that we are qualified to share in the inheritance of the saints in light And Christ delivered us from the domain of darkness and he transferred us from the kingdom of the beloved Son in whom we have redemption and we have forgiveness of sins. And so our hearts come this morning rejoicing, not only on the earthly good things that you've done for us, but the eternal things that you have done for us through Jesus Christ. We thank you that he is the perfect God-man, that he came and lived perfectly in this world, reacted with all perfection and all holiness, and fulfilled all of the law. God, he lived this out for our sake and on our behalf. And then he died, taking upon himself my sin, our sin, and granting us his righteousness. We now have new life that comes only by grace through faith in Jesus Christ alone. So, Father, we have so much to be grateful for. And our hearts rejoice in your loving kindness this morning. Now, Father, I pray as the gospel goes out throughout the world, I pray that it would go out with, with power. I pray that it would go out with, with uh, the, the transformation of hearts. And, Father, I pray that it would be heard and listened to, not just physically, but the ears of our hearts would be open and we would hear spiritually the eyes of our hearts, would see spiritually the things that you are teaching us this morning. Father, I pray for our good friends Mark and Diane Zimmer, Lord, who give of their heart and their lives to to minister to the good people in the Micronesian island of Yap. Lord, I pray for Diane in particular, Lord, as she continues to go through chemotherapy, Lord, for her cancer. Father, we're asking that you would give her great strength. Lord, there are literally thousands of people observing how this uh, this lady um, is walking through very difficult times. Lord, they have given of their lives uh, to, to reach those people there on the island of Yap. And we thank you so much, Lord, for how much uh, salvation has, has occurred into the hearts and lives of the hearers there in Yap. Lord, the, the, and we could possibly say that the majority of the island has come to know Jesus through the work of these people and Lord I pray for Mark as he guides his family I pray that you would grant them peace this morning and that you would cause her body to heal and Lord that you would uh, see that, that they would see the glory of the great God the great healer the great physician continue to work in and through that situation there and then father I can't help but think of my good brother Mark Uh, Mike Goldfuss, Lord, up at Bible Community Church in Mentor, Ohio, Lord, as he stands in his pulpit today and preaches, I pray, Father, that you would give him clarity of heart and mind, that you would give him clarity of thought, Uh, Lord, as he speaks, give him the words to say, that the people there... Uh, Lord, up up in the northern part of Ohio would would hear the message of the gospel, that, Lord, You would bring people to Yourself through the gospel message there that is preached there. Lord, continue to encourage that church and those people there. Now, Father, we're asking that You would meet with us this morning. We need to hear from You. We need Your Word. Father, there's nothing more important to us this morning than coming together, worshiping You, and listening to Your Word. Father, You be our God. You be our king this morning, and let our hearts rejoice in you, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. It's so good to see each of you. Hope you had a wonderful Thanksgiving. Um, we continue to, to, as elders, try to figure out what we should do. The numbers continue to climb. Uh, the, the, the numbers of beds in our community are, are being used now. And um, almost to capacity, not quite there yet. So we continue to ask for wisdom. We, we look and make decisions every week as to whether or not we, we should open. Um, just simply because we want to care for our, our neighbors, our brothers and sisters. We certainly would not want to be a place where uh, it continues to spread here. Uh, and so we're asking for, for wisdom uh, that you guys would would continue to pray for us as we seek to do God's will. Um, you say, well, it should be no problem. Yeah, it shouldn't be. It shouldn't be a problem, but it is because we live in a very fallen world and uh, we want to love our neighbors. Uh, we also pray specifically um, for this coming holiday season. It's a great time to give out the gospel. Normally, under normal circumstances, we would uh, read about the coming of Christ and then um, just as a, as a way of helping us look forward to Jesus coming we light one candle uh, and then on Christmas Eve we have all five of the candles lit you see what well, is that some sort of a religious ritual no it's not it's just a tradition that we have set in place to help us understand that Jesus is coming Jesus is coming Jesus is coming and we look forward to that and he's coming again and it could be today wouldn't that be wonderful it really would be so I hope that you and your own spiritual life uh, are ready to go and meet him, um, because there is nothing greater in this world than Jesus Christ. There's no one greater, and there's nothing greater than the message of the gospel that He alone saves. So let your heart rejoice in this. We're looking at Matthew chapter 23 today. Very, very important text uh, as we are getting very, very close uh, to Jesus going to the cross. In fact, we are hours away from the death of Christ as we walk through this Gospel of Matthew. It's Wednesday, according to what the the theologians have plotted, how we've gone through this entire week uh, where Jesus is headed to the cross. And it's a very long Wednesday for Jesus. Chapter 22 was one session, we broke it up into four, but it was one session where Jesus duels with the religious leaders And now Jesus begins to shift gears, as it were, and he shifts to another part of the audience that had gathered around him. And verse 1 tells us, Then Jesus said to the crowd and to his disciples. The word then gives us the idea that he's done dealing with the religious leaders. He is rejecting them, and he's saying, I'm not going to deal with you anymore. I'm going to then... Uh, speak directly to those people who desperately need to understand and discern between genuine Christianity and false religion so Jesus takes all of his energy that he has left and he pours it out to people who must hear the truth. It must have seemed also wrong for Jesus to come into this world to take on human flesh and to tabernacle with the ones that he had given the law to and now he has found that the truth is twisted truth is abused and used even to the point that the very thing that was supposed to bring salvation and inner peace between God and man was the very thing that turned dead cold indifferent hearts turned them colder you see religion has a way of destroying life as God intended it to be The difficulty of organized religion is that it inwardly brings further death and decay to an already spiritually dead heart. But it does so in the name of God. And so it's very confusing to people who are watching. It is all practiced in sincerity. And was just enough truth to sound good. But when religion is put to the light of the one true God and His Messiah, one can begin to see the cracks. To begin to see the deception, the lies, and the ultimate destructive toll that it takes on lives because it really offers no true hope. It offers no true way in life and offers no genuine truth for life. If anyone ever concludes that there are many ways to God, and any faith will do, they need to hear this entire chapter and listen very carefully to what Jesus is saying. And I beg you this morning, That as we go into this chapter, that you go in with your ears tuned. What is it that Jesus is saying? Because Jesus spoke out against the religion of the Pharisees earlier in Matthew chapter 15 and verse 7. He had warned His disciples about the harmful teaching of the Pharisees in Matthew 16 verses 5 through 12. And here, His warnings become very public and they become very personal. And when Jesus speaks in this way, we... His people should listen, because the Pharisees and the teachers of the law had rejected Him. They were even plotting to have Him killed. And this is exactly what was going on as we walked through uh, Matthew chapter 22 and now chapter 23. Time is very short for Jesus. And so He dials up His intensity of His message and coming to terms with the true Jesus in Matthew's mind meant you must reject the false notions about who Jesus is and his, and be very given of yourselves to begin to understand what it meant for Jesus to be the Messiah. And because of this, in the kingdom of God, understand, there would be no place for hypocrisy. There's no need for hypocrisy in God's salvation. You can't pick and choose Jesus. You can't say he's a wonderful prophet, wonderful teacher, but then close your ears to the words of God that he spoke. You can't then take his words, reshape them to your own liking, to what what you are most comfortable with. my, My friend, you must listen to the king. Only Jesus is God. Hear him. There's no place for an external veneer in Christianity. He calls us to be authentic, to be real, to be genuine. So this is a very stern and even blistering sermon. Six times Jesus calls out the Pharisees and He calls them hypocrites. Now in our passage this morning, it's the introduction to His message. It's the introduction to his last sermon to the people and to his disciples. And he stresses two very important things. This is what I want you to see this morning. First of all, beware. Beware of false religion. Beware. It's all around us. And and it's interesting to note, and I won't take time to do this this morning, but just watch as 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 you see stories of the, the, the Incarnation, In this Christmas season. Just watch how wrong it is given. Things that are added or subtracted that are not given in the story that you won't see. So beware. Beware. It's all over the place. Beware of false religion. And secondly, embrace authentic Christ-likeness. Embrace authentic Christ-likeness, and he's going to show us what does that look like. Our text this morning, then, is this wonderful introduction to his message, and it sets the stage for what will come next. We studied in chapter 5 seven blessings of the kingdom, and it's given to us to understand what authentic Christianity really looks like, and we studied that clear back in chapter 5, and what we will see next are seven woes of warning to the deceptive, to the facade-based living of the false religion of the Pharisees and scribes in chapter 23. Now, this will be very convicting, because we are the Pharisees. We're the ones who who give of ourselves to these things as we will study this morning. Because he gives this warning to the deceptive, to this facade-based living of false religion. And these, chapter 5 and this chapter 23 are bookends to all that Christ taught and all that He lived out and all that He stood for here on earth. It is the culmination of these confrontations of the King that will seal His death on the cross. It is what actually puts Him in the place of being put to death. And while Jesus is blunt and to the point and confrontational, It's not without a deep-seated love and grace for His people. And His desire to bring all things under His supreme rule as the King that He is. He that has ears to hear, let Him hear. And may we hear this morning. May we not just listen, but may we actually hear what is being said. So let's look at the first point. First of all, beware of false religion. And we see this in verses 1-7. through Jesus is aware of His audience. He knows exactly who he's speaking to. And essentially, the people he had just finished addressing in chapter 2 were the false leaders and the ones who had proliferated a religion that was filled with this self-righteous system where their man-made standards of right and wrong were the things to live for. And it's a condemning religion in that it was based on a system of man-centered works. Man's own way to please God and get to God. And yet, it had all the bells and whistles of genuine God worship. But notice just how empty and void of substance it really is. Today, beware of false religion. These people lived a certain way. First of all, we see in verses 2 and 3, they lived hypocritically. Jesus goes right to the point. And he says, the scribes and Pharisees sit on Moses' seat. You see, Jesus knew how important this was to the Pharisees. And apparently um, over there in in that region where Jesus lived, there is really a, a rock, and out of that rock there's carved out a seat. And apparently it was where Moses gave of himself to speak the law to the people. And so these were the ones who were the purveyors of the law. The Pharisees were the ones who ruled the law. The law was everything to them. So they sat themselves on Moses' seat. Now this was not a literal thing, although my understanding is that you can actually go and do that. But they assign themselves. Do you see what it says? Notice again in verse 2 here. The scribes and the Pharisees sit on Moses' seat and so practice and observe whatever they tell you, but not what they do. They assign themselves this position. Jesus, though, isn't speaking at this point to what they're teaching. To their content. But he is going to the heart, once again, to highlight their own willful dismissing of the effect of God's law in their own hearts. Because he says this, they preach but do not practice. This is the issue. They say all the right things, yet in their lives there is no genuine living. And this is the real essence of what it means to be a hypocrite. This is exactly what hypocrisy is. You see, the scribes were the lawyers, the theologians. They were skilled in Mosaic law. And so-so, with, with great position, precision, they would teach. And they would defend the law. The Pharisees upheld it and enforced it. And just how the law should be lifted out. And this was Jesus' whole point. These are folks who would hold externally to all the right things but in their own life and practice their spiritual life did not exist you say how do you how does he know this how does jesus know this well jesus says that they pretended to care a lot about the law but they themselves were lax in their obedience to it all you had to do was watch their lives It wasn't hard. In other words, they could be very strict when they were telling you what you ought to do in accordance with the law, but they were lax in finding loopholes for themselves and their friends when it was convenient. So they talked a very strict game. And yet their living was not in accordance with the truth of of God's Word. It's a pretense. It's all about a pretense of having very right principles and right standards, but nothing of true substance was going on inside of their hearts. The self-righteous are folks who have no integrity. They speak very well, though. And it all looks so good. They demand more of others. And they're always the hardest people to live with. Because they demand more of others. And they themselves... Demand more of themselves, and yet it is all bent on what they do. It's their own standard of what is right that they're after. But the reality is, they can't even keep it themselves. They don't live out the truth that they speak themselves. They live life with a certain smugness that is often unrelatable and their pride and their self-righteousness are fierce and difficult to live with. Because they're right. And their righteousness is far better than yours. Jesus is calling them and us to live a life of true integrity. These are people who live... Hypocritically, But notice, secondly, because they're living in this false world that they give themselves to, then they're indifferent to people around them. See this in verse 4? They tie up heavy burdens, hard to bear, and lay them on the people's shoulders, but they themselves are not willing to move them with their finger. This is a, a very austere picture of what it's like to live under the dominance of the law. And because of their expectations of law-keeping, they put expectations on others that end up being a very heavy and hard burden to bear because it leaves the ability to be perfect on the shoulders of people who actually cannot be perfect. So it's an endless, imperfected way of living. The standard is here, but you can't do this. But you got to keep trying. And so it's a do-more, try-harder way of living. And it is exhausting. Because the demand is always there. It's a hard way to do life. It's even harder because the self-righteousness become God and judge all in one. Because it's their standard. They become the purveyor of what is right and what is wrong. And if you don't do it according to their standard and their way, then of course you have a problem. So it's on this treadmill that just keeps picking up speed over and over and over. It reminds me of the you know, the cartoon ones that are on the treadmill and they, they fall off of it and they lay flat like this and the treadmill flips them back, flips them back, flips them back, flips them That's kind of how it is. If you've ever lived in a very legalistic environment like that, you know what I'm talking about. Because the people around them are merciless. And that they will not lift the finger to help ease the burden. They won't come alongside and help you with living out the righteousness of Christ that that He has given to you. No, they just expect you, here's the standard, you live to it. And so the assumption is that everyone does, everyone comes, they all do. And that's the way it was with the Pharisees. When they got together, you looked at them and go, like, Wow, these are good people. Because that's what they look like on the outside. They're insensitive. They don't understand when people fail. Because you don't fail. There's no room for you to fail. Self-righteousness lives to a standard and they don't recognize that they actually cannot live up to that standard even themselves, but they expect others to. And so there's this condescending way in which we deal with people then. Well, bless your heart, if you had character like I do, if you had the ability like I do, then you would get it right. There's very little grace given. Because the standard or principle becomes the ruling issue. It's not about you, it's about this standard. And we have standards. There's very little grace that's given. And it's a loveless and graceless relationship. And thus, they feel in their own hearts that they get to cut people off. I'm the ones in charge. You don't live up to my standards. Done with you. It's harsh. It's difficult, and it's filled with a divisive pride. If you've ever been in an environment like that, you know exactly what Jesus is talking about. And there's this great indifference. I don't actually have to care for people. You just meet the standard. And we're good when we're meeting the standard. And we're not good when we don't meet the standard. They live indifferently. Thirdly, they live superficially. Look at verses 5-7, through seven, how Jesus portrays this. This is, this is an amazing snapshot of how life is even in our world today. Look at what he says. They do all their deeds to be seen by others. For they make their phylacteries broad and their fringes long. And they love the place of honor at feasts and the best seats in the synagogue, and the greetings in the marketplaces, and being called rabbi by others. Oh my goodness. They live superficially. For these folks, all of life is one big cover to what is really true. So they live for the optics. What does this look like? What does it look like to others? And they usually couch it in terms of, well, we want to be a good testimony. We want to live for the glory of God. You'll hear sounds like that. And puts all the emphasis, though, on the wrong syllable. Because you know what? You will never be a good testimony like you ought to be. You won't. You don't have the ability to be a good testimony. And what is a good testimony? Well, it's kind of nebulous. Everyone kind of thinks they know what that is. But really, we don't know what that is. But it's only up to what I think a good testimony of Jesus is. And so it leaves it in nebulous land. One doesn't actually have to be good. One can get away with just looking good. And it, so it breeds a whole way of living that seeks to get by but doesn't want to get caught. Because if you get caught, then we know you're not good. It's all a facade. And Jesus pointed it out by giving the examples of how they adorned themselves with what is called phylacteria it 's kind of a funny name it 's almost like a virus sounding thing. You have phylacteria oh, but what it was it was a tiny box that would hold a piece of parchment that and it would hold typically they would put in these boxes pieces of scripture and usually it was from exodus or deuteronomy and god told him in fact in deuteronomy chapter 6 verse 8 to bind the commands of god as a sign on your hand and on your forehead i mean this was this was a very real thing that god wanted to understand and it was a way for god to say these laws should be seen on how you live on your hand and how you think in your forehead but they, in their desire to show everyone how good they really were, they would make boxes, these little tiny boxes, and literally would tie them to their wrists and to their forehead. It's called phylacteria. And over time they began to make these boxes just a little bit bigger and a little bit broader, indicating that they had more of God's law in them than others. It was all a show. They also made tassels or or fringes. And God told the priests to place blue and white tassels on the corner of their robes in order to remind them of God's commandments. And over time, these tassels amazingly grew longer and more full with all the external design to show others just how zealous they were and how more righteous they were than others. These phylacterias and tassels were often regarded as highly as the Scriptures, and some even imagine that God Himself wore these things. And it was one big pretentious externalism and man-centered legalism that are to this day still worn by the Jews. You go and you watch how, how, how man-made religion looks, and what do they have? These long robes, these very high hats, these, these very large and ostentatious, uh, almost, almost um, strange-looking outfits that they wear because they're this or they, they, they have this, this particular, uh, they, they've risen to this particular level. And the size here indicates a measure of zeal. And wearing of large ones and broad ones would take the place of genuine obedience in the heart towards God and His Word. And it was all about what it looked like. What others thought of them. And it had nothing to do with repentance from sin and faith in Christ's atoning work. It had nothing to do with the person of Jesus Christ. And what was so important to them was pretense. Their deeds to be seen. They would sit in places of most visibility. And their titles meant everything to them. Position, self-affirmation, titles, and labels put on people. That was their world. And no one could take that from them. It was man-created. As I thought this week, spent some time thinking and praying over this, I couldn't help both, I couldn't help how both the phylacteries and tassels are still with us today. Now we, in the the kind of the crowd that that we would run with, would would look at, we don't wear hats, we don't wear symbols, we don't don't have crosses, we don't have banners, you know, those kind of things. And yet, to to think that this kind of self-righteousness doesn't exist, I would say, no, no, no. (laughs) This is an issue of the heart. It's not the issue of the thing worn or the or the, the phylacteria themselves, it's the issue of the heart. Because those things become like charms or amulets that one would ward off evil to them and and seen as a magical talisman for good luck. Do we have stuff like that? Ours is not so much about that, but we still have our systems of living or our symbols of Christianity that identify us or that we think will identify us as good and godly people. Well, what are some of those things? Well, I grew up in the middle of a system that was law-oriented. And it sounded so religious. It was a system that over time grew and called themselves fundamentalism. And some of you may have grown up in this and you'll know what I'm talking about. It was a movement that started really with great motives. It asked questions like, what are the core and necessary beliefs that any denomination must have to be a Christian? What are the core fundamentals? Very good good question. Nothing wrong with that. In fact, that question still exists today. We have what is called Together for the Gospel. It's the same idea. We're, we may be different all in these other areas, but, but Together for the Gospel, that's what we're about. That's how it started. And... and, and what happened is that over time, Jesus and his gospel, though, became something that was merely assumed. Well, of course, Jesus. But here's the important thing. And it was the external lifestyle that mattered most. I don't know that they intended it to be that way. I don't know that they were on purpose doing it. But it just was like this snowball. It just kept coming down the hill. They, they, I, I saw pastors jockey for positions. And set themselves up as the final authority in the church and thus in your life. And they would tell you, this is how you must live your life. And it has to be this and this and not that. They had large throne-like chairs on the stage. That they would sit in. And they had strong insistence upon their titles. I can remember this day, you did not dare call them by their first name. Everyone and everything had a label, and you would talk and you'd have conversation. They go, "Oh well, this is, we we talked about this. So like, oh, there, I mean that person. Oh my goodness, he is he is solid." And I, as a teenager, I used to hear stuff like this and go, "Like, what, what does it mean to be solid? What what's solid? What's the opposite of solid? He is he's heir? He's I'm mean, like I don't know what is this. And what it meant was no he." Owned a certain kind of doctrinal truths. He's solid. We know it. See, when you do that, you've labeled him someone, you don't actually have to get to know that guy. You don't have to get to know him, just know, oh, he's solid. Why? Because so and so said he is. And that becomes proliferated. It comes, it comes the way of doing things. Everyone and everything had a label. People were not important. Ministry was. You didn't use ministry to build people. You used people to build ministry. And so ministry was the main thing. You built ministries, a.k.a. kingdoms. And it bred within a certain distrust of everyone around you because you began to notice those who couldn't live up to the standard. I had dear friends who were so frustrated over and over and over because they would get dismissed. They would get marginalized. Why? Because they couldn't keep the standards. And they knew it. And so they, it bred this, this hopelessness. Because I couldn't keep the standards. I happened to be a person who was liked. Why? Well, mainly because I could play the piano. <laughs> you laugh, but I, I could. And I made them look good. Because I could change keys. I could, we could do the hash chorus, Jerry. We could do that, and I could do that really good with playing the piano. And so, man, I was well-liked, and I was used for everything. But no one ever took the time to sit and find out who I was spiritually, and did I actually love Jesus? And this is the facade that, that comes up. What doesn't matter was the person, the soul of a person. There was no room actually to be a sinner. You couldn't be a sinner. Grace and mercy were frowned on, but it was your efforts that mattered. And so, messages constantly try hard, do more. You need to be reading the Word of God every day, and if you don't, you're going you're to be stunted the rest of your life if you don't read the Word of God every day. Well, man, I read the Word of God every day. I don't want to be stunted. But I had no relationship with Jesus. I didn't know God. Was I saved? I believe I was saved, genuinely converted. But it was a tr- truly an amazing day when grace began to begin to work in my heart, and I began to understand what it meant when it first appeared. When grace first appeared, I felt like John Newton. He wrote, amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. It was life-changing for me. But there were other phylacterias. There were other tassels, like separation was another phylacteria. It's a term that would use that we are here and, of course, you're not, so we're going to separate from you. And separation was 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 proliferated. Certain lifestyles, that things wouldn't that, that folks wouldn't engage in, even though the Bible itself didn't address it. And it wasn't that those certain guidelines weren't helpful, but they became everything. You couldn't serve in the church if you did certain things, and they became over time the emphasis. Still, though, it wasn't on it, the emphasis wasn't on Jesus' work on our behalf. It was simply a document that I had signed that said I wouldn't do these things, or I would only do these things. And it was no longer on Christ the solid rock I stand. Instead, it's on me. And what I do and what I don't, that's where I stand. And this is what makes this text so vital for our own hearts today. Because the very default in our hearts is the default of the Pharisees. We want to create our own way to God, we want to be affirmed by others. And so we will create this this religious environment, this religious world, and we will assume that everyone who says, yes, I am of this world, this is what matters, that they're good. And I don't ever have to talk to you personally. Some of you say, boy, you know, when we became members, you had an interview, didn't you? And the first thing we did in the, in, the, in the foundations class is took a test. Do you remember that? And was like, how do you know the gospel? What is the gospel? And how do you know that you're truly born again? Why is that important? Because it's the core of what the church is. If you're not truly born again, then you may be playing the facade that these guys played. You couldn't serve in the church. And if you did certain things, it became, over time, elements that people began to separate from you. And so, what time, what over time was it, is, is you, you were part of a, of a group of people, and then if you didn't do those things, they would put you out of their fellowship. What they would often call it. We had all kinds of pastoral fellowships. Um, But it really wasn't about fellowship because the emphasis still wasn't on Jesus' work on our behalf. It was simply on what am I I doing. Other things like today in our world we have the phylacteria or the fringes of conservatism. I'm conservative. I hear Christians say that all the time. I don't even know what that means. What does that mean? I know what it means sort of down south. I don't know if I understand it worldwide. I don't know what conservatism means. Or reformed is another big phylacteria. Well, I'm Reformed. Okay, what does that mean? Reformed Orthodox? Reformed Presbyterian? Reformed, Reformed what? What does it mean to be Reformed? Those are things that we throw out and it's like, oh, I've got the lingo down. And this is what makes this text so important. We're the Pharisees. So Jesus then switches gears. In the middle of all this, he's saying this is what it looks like for false religions. But then notice secondly, embrace authentic Christ-likeness. And we see this beginning in verse 8 through 12. And this will go quickly, I promise, okay? Robert Marie McShane said this, It is the mark of the hypocrite to be a Christian everywhere else but home. It is the mark of the hypocrite to be a Christian everywhere else but home. That is, to look externally like a Christian in public, where you can be seen, and yet in your homes, in our private times, where we're not seen by men, we don't practice what we proclaim. This troubled Jesus, and quite frankly, it troubles our own hearts. Our elders are troubled by this in our own lives, and in our own church. It's troubling in the church of America today. Genuine Christianity is such a lost reality in our churches. To embrace authentic Christ-likeness means that Christ's own integrity and righteousness become ours. We no longer keep looking for our own righteousness. His righteousness becomes ours. And it's all by grace through His presence in us. And it shows out, it begins to live its way out in two different places in this text. First of all, in verses 8 through 10, you regard the people of God as family. Will you look with me in verse 8? This is so beautiful. But you are not to be called rabbi, for you have one teacher, and you are all brothers. You regard the people of God as family. Christ gives this contrast here, and it's very stunning. You don't go after titles like rabbi. You don't, don't go after the, the titles. Don't go after the positions. Notice here, Jesus isn't dealing with the title itself for the title's sake. Understand, there will be rabbis, there will be teachers, but that's not the important thing. What he's dealing with now is how we look at each other. How do we handle each other? And this is what I love about the church. Because he points our hearts to the phrase at the very end of verse 8, We are all brothers. It's so beautiful. It really is the fact that the ground is truly level at the cross. We don't come into this gathering wearing our titles, our education degrees, our earthly accolades, or, or claims of being someone. Why? Because we're well, the only thing that we are, are brothers and sisters in Christ because of what Jesus has done. And we all have one Father. So we don't use the title Father. We don't create these titles within the church. Well, I'm, I'm Father. I'm Father Eric. From time to time I get called that. It's like, oh, here's Father Eric. I'm going like, no, I'm not your father. I am, if you belong to Jesus, I'm your brother. And I'm just a pastor. Oh, you're a pastor. I'm just a shepherd. That's it. Nothing great in that. It's kind of dirty, kind of cold. You sit outside, watching sheep. Nothing big about that. We don't use the Father. There's only one Father. That is God, our Father. We have one instructor, Jesus. The living Word and the written Word. And He is our all. So you have here, what is important? God is important. God's Word is important. The authority of God is what's important. Early in church history, there became what was known as the clergy and laity gap. Where there was this division between the clergy... The pastors, the elder, and the general people of the church, and this caused great harm. I believe. I've seen the remnants of this over the years, and have purposefully worked to go against that type of Christianity. Jesus led the way in His humiliation, that Paul points out to us in Philippians chapter two, in in verses six through eight. He said that Jesus did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. The position, the right. To be who he was, it, it's not the big deal. But he became a man. He emptied himself. Became a servant. Became a man. Humbled himself. Submitted to death. The death of the cross. Titles were not a thing with Jesus. It cannot be our thing either here in the church. Well, many people ask me this from time to time. They say, like, well, well, what should I call you? Well, and this is what you'll hear me say. And if you haven't heard me say it, I probably will will say it every time you're asked. So What do I call you? Well, my mom always called me Eric, and and I like that name. I I don't mind that name at all, and I probably am in tune to that. So you can you can call me Eric. I understand, though, from time to time, parents will say, "Yeah, but I don't know if I like my kids calling you Eric." Well. Okay, then they can call me Pastor Eric. And so we use the idea of Pastor Mike or or Michael or, or Pastor Dave, whatever. I get it. I understand the need for titles. But the attitude of the heart is we don't wear the titles on our sleeves. In other words, I want you to understand that I am a shepherd because I'm shepherding your hearts because of the position, the care, and the earnest love that I have for you. Not because I wear this title. What is a title? As I said, it's a shepherd. I mean, good grief. I, I sweep the streets. That's what I do. You know, well, big deal. But in Christ's kingdom economy, it's a huge deal. These little titles can become religious tassels or external indicators that we use to sound religious We sound really loving and caring, but if the heart itself doesn't love and care, what good are the titles? And this is Jesus' point. Look around you here today and see people who are family, that you're not familiar with. And give of yourself to this family. So the best pastor really is one who gets out of the way, who preaches you the Word of God so that you might relate to the Heavenly Father. What's important here is your own relationship with Jesus Christ. And I want to do everything I can to help you. And I know our elders want to do everything that we can to help you become more like Christ and less like yourself. So we don't have fathers that become mediators. We have one Father. That is God Himself. Through Jesus Christ, who is our mediator. And therefore we exalt Him. But notice secondly, so you have this wonderful family that god gives to you and you begin to live yourself out you live your life out of out of this you care for the family but the second thing you do is you regard serving as the highest value look at verses 11 and 12 the greatest among you shall be your servant the greatest among you will be your servant and here's perhaps the greatest contrast that jesus is getting at people who think highly of themselves who grab for the limelight who pursue titles and positions are not people who serve people Jesus came not to be served, but to serve. His whole life was one of service, to do the will of the Father and to serve humanity in a way that no one else could ever serve. The word Jesus, the word that Jesus uses here is the word for which we get our word deacon. You deacon. It's as if Jesus says, You go serve tables. You find people in the family of God, you go serve them. This is why I say in foundations class, okay, you're about ready to leave this class and you're about ready to go out and you go in there and you go into that auditorium and you can't just sit there and be smug and kind of sit there and kind of go like this. No, 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 my friend. You must serve and give yourself to people. You see, the zeal for greatness must be disciplined downward into a passion for greatest service to the rest. It's a difference between seeking a status or seeking where can I serve and how can I serve God and His people. But then Jesus places everything in the hands of the Father in verse 12. And He says this, Whoever exalts himself will be humbled. And whoever who humbles himself will be exalted. He'll be exalted. Now the two here, are future passive verbs, refers to the verdicts that will come out in the Last Judgment. You see, the desire of the Pharisee and the self-righteous is to get their honor in the present, right now. And so everything in their lives is ordered in such a way, they pursue their own glory and their own honor, and they want it now. But the servant is serving in a way that as you serve, you serve. And guess what? You will be exalted. Who will exalt you? The Father will exalt you. You're not exalting yourself. Who will honor you? The Father is the one who will honor you. And that's exactly what Jesus did. You read down to verse 11 in Philippians chapter 2. And at the name of Jesus, every tongue will, be, will confess it to, to glory of God. And guess what? And the Father will highly exalt Him. You see, the desire though of the Pharisee and the self-righteousness is to get their honor now. You see, when Jesus begins to enter the life of a believer, it's a game changer. Oh my goodness. He brings the glory of the Father. He brings His own righteousness. And it's placed in our lives. And our lives begin operating under the future tense. We give presently out of a firm belief in the future it is our highest delight, our highest ambition, our highest joy to serve the glory of God in all of life and we joyfully and zealously live our lives to love God and to serve Him and love others and serve them. And in this, there is no place for hypocrisy. One of the things that 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 living this way does, it, it strips you of the facade. You can't love people hypocritically. You can't. Because love doesn't work that way. Love will shred your facade. It must be real. When you make your own personal fulfillment of the law of the gold, you'll come up short every time. That is the great purpose of the law. Is to remind you how short you fall. All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. The perfect law keeper, though, is Jesus. And He kept the law perfectly. And this morning, it is our delight and it is our heart's satisfaction that we come to Christ alone and we throw ourselves down upon Him as the one true lawgiver and the one true giver and the one true keeper. And we find our heart's delight and satisfaction in Him alone. Oh, my friend, this is what makes Jesus so lovely. I love the hymn writer says this, I need no other righteousness. I need no other plea. It is enough that Jesus died and that he died for me. My friend, beware of the false religion, but embrace genuine Christ-likeness. Will you pray with me this morning? Father in heaven, thank you for your word, how it reminds us of what our need is, but Lord, how it also takes us to the place where that need is met in Christ alone. So Father, we thank you for the words of Jesus, reminding us that there is a false way of living, and we have great tendencies down that road to give ourselves to a false theology, and a false sense of my own righteousness, and a false smugness. And Father, I pray that we would be people who turn to Jesus and find great satisfaction in Him alone. You be our King. You be our Savior. You be our Lord. And we bow to You this morning. We pray and ask these things because of Jesus.